singularity. Um, <laughs> thanks a lot, guys. Um, so let me start by saying that about an hour before I was to get in our car and uh, come over here, we got a phone call telling us that my wife's grandmother just died this morning. So um, I was kind of debating if I should cancel this appearance of mine or not. And uh, I am here. The reason why I decided to come was because I think it's that important. I think some of the things that I will throw at you today are the biggest ideas in the world today. And the biggest ideas that humanity would have to contend with. And those are the ideas which are going to determine if we're going to survive as a species or we're going to go extinct like the dinosaurs. Um, and so I am here to speak about this and I think you would be the decision makers. Like it or not, you'll be the ones who make that call probably, so no pressure. Um, but my head, my head got totally scrambled in the morning, so and mentally I'll be with my wife and her family, so um, if I'll be referring often to my notes here, I hope you'd excuse me about that. Anyway, let's go to the topic here. So I want to begin today by acknowledging, first of all, your teacher, Hermine Steinberg, because she doesn't know what I'm going to tell you today. And I'm willing to bet that much of it she would disagree with and she would not support. <laughs> and so she is taking a risk by bringing me to talk to you here today. And from my life's experience, I know that people who take a chance and who take a risk are the people who care. So um, I'd like to acknowledge her for that, and I hope you do so too, because she's, it seems to me that she does care very much for you. So uh, who am I and why am I here today? My name is Nick Danilov, you can call me Nick. Um, I'm a blogger and a podcaster. My blog is called singularityweblog.com. I get about 50,000 unique visitors a month. I have a YouTube channel and a podcast called Singularity One-on-One, -on -One, where I have interviewed about 100 of the most famous people in the worlds of technology from a number of sciences, and some of the biggest skeptics too. Uh, my show has had about half a million downloads so far. Um, so, about two summers ago, I was one of the most luckiest people in the world who got to go for about 10 weeks and live in NASA's Ames campus in California, in Mountain View, California, where I got to meet people like Steve Wozniak, Ray Kurzweil, astronaut Dan Barry, the people who sent the Mars rovers up, I went to visit Google, Facebook, Tesla, the coolest places in the world. And I got to live there for 10 weeks among those people. So the things that I will be talking to you about today are not a religion, they're not a cult, they're not science fiction. They are happening. They are at different stages in the lab, but those are the issues that will be coming out and happening in the next 10, 20, and 30 years. 
anyway, um, this our conversation is not about me. So let's talk about what am I here to say to you today. The first biggest question is um, about education. It's about are you guys apathetic, as many people suspect or argue that you are, or are you bored? Just the way like I was bored when I was in your position. My hypothesis is that you are just like me. You're totally bored and you're not apathetic. But this theory is to be tested today, so we'll see. So my plan is to talk to you for about half of the class, uh, during which time, uh, as you can see, this is being recorded because it will be the next episode for my show so that others can benefit from our from this. But right after that, we'll shut down the camera so that nobody feels any pressure whatsoever and we can just talk one-on-one -on -one directly. And you, you're willing to tell me, if you're willing to tell me how much you agree or disagree with what I'm about to say, I would really appreciate it. And so... Um, Why are you bored if you're bored? And I think that there are two reasons for that. And that is, first of all, there is a myth that goes along these lines. Do your schoolwork, get good grades in classes, and you'll get a good job and a good life. And all of you are adults here to know that that's not really how it works in real life. In fact, I would go on to claim that there's absolutely no correlationship whatsoever between how you did in school and how you're going to do in life. None. Let me give you two examples. Do you guys, by the way, know who Bob McDonald is? Any one of you seen the CBC News? Bob McDonald is the science correspondent on the CBC News Radio and on the CBC News. So every time when, for example, the meteor exploded in Russia or when we have satellites in space, anything related to science, he is the science correspondent. He has six honorary degrees. And so I was totally flabbergasted when I got him on my show and he told me that he's a dropout. He actually never made it through university, ever. And now he has six honorary degrees. And one of the things he told me is, I have always, I have never been qualified for the things that I do, ever. So, uh, another example is, I don't know uh, if you've seen it lately in the news, uh, there was a, a story about a 15-year-old kid called Jack Andreka, who invaded, invented a uh, pancreatic cancer test, which cost three cents is about uh, 25,000 times faster and 99% uh, accurate. So it's about 20,000 fa faster than the card gold standard, which costs about $800 and takes three days to run. He invented a test which you can run for five minutes with a drop of your blood and it costs three cents. And when he came up with the idea, he sent his uh, idea to 200 university professors in medicine, and he got 199 no's, and one maybe. And um, one of those no's took the effort to go every step of the way through his proposal and tell him how every step of the way it will not work. 
So he went with the maybe. He started working in somebody's lab, and a year later he had a prototype, and it works. So his theory actually created a prototype which is able to detect cancer, and he won a bunch of international awards, went to meet the president, and anyway. And I interviewed him for my show, and he told me, if a 15-year-old kid can come up with this, when six months ago I didn't even know I had a pancreas, imagine what's possible. So I want to say that if you think that you can't do anything because you failed chemistry or you barely passed biology or you had bad grades in school, I would say think again. The experience shows exactly the opposite. I'm willing to bet that if you put your mind to it, with the tools that I will be talking about in the next few minutes, you can reinvent the world and you can change any discipline that you care about. And it doesn't matter what your teacher said or what your parents said or, or what kind of grade you got in school. It absolutely doesn't matter. Or at least that's my view. Um, so, the other problem with education is that education is historical. It's retrospective. It looks back. And I believe that and the reason why I'm here to talk to you today is that we have to look to the future, not only the past. The past is very important, but the future may turn out to be more important right now. And so... Let me give you two reasons why talking about the future is important. First of all, we can't do anything about the past. The past is already a fact. It's happened. It's done. It's over. It's finished. You can't change it. But modest efforts have often given substantial insights into our future. And we know that the harder we try, the better impact we can have on that future. Our future begins with the decisions we take today. The other reason is that, as I said before, it might be your generation that will be the one to steer our civilization at the time of unparalleled danger and promise. At the time when we can face immortality, and I don't mean immortality in the biblical sense, I mean physical immortality. Physical immortality. Scientific immortality. The one that people are working on right now in Silicon Valley the one that starts by making new organs from people and eventually replacing every single of your parts that goes bust, just like you replace the parts in your car when they go bust. And just like we can have a Ford Model T that was designed to last for about 10 years in the 1920s, and we can drive that car today for the sole reason that we know everything there is to be known about that car, we know how all the parts work, we know how to put them together, and when something goes wrong, we can fix it. My view is that our bodies are very complex machines. They're very complex. They're orders of magnitude harder than a Ford Model T, but they're machines nevertheless. And if we figure out how everything works, we can fix it, and we are fixing it. And so, but with those promises come unparalleled dangers. I mean, they come in many forms. Nuclear weapons is just one of them. 
Um, so the downside of any promise is the danger. And so you might be the ones who sit at that crevice and you make the call whether humanity would go on to colonize the stars or whether we go extinct like the dinosaurs. So I will try to quickly throw some of the biggest trends at you in the worlds of technology and then I'll try to give you a summary of how and why this might be important for you in the next few minutes. So first of all, what's the biggest trend? The biggest trend is what's called accelerating change. We know that things are changing around us all the time, but I'm sure that many of you have noticed that they're not only changing, they're changing faster than ever before. And that change, that acceleration is accelerating in its own right. So if you were in the hunter-gatherer society, things didn't change for a thousand years. Your great-great-great-grandparents lived exactly the same way as you did. Nothing changed really, right? Think about the changes that have happened in the 20th century, and if you can't do that, think about the changes that have happened in the last 10 years. Those changes that happened in the last 10 years were bigger, more fundamental, deeper, and more radical than ever in the history of our civilization. Let me give you a couple of examples. When radio was invented, it took about maybe four, maybe even five decades before it reached a certain substantial amount of people. TV took about two or three decades. The internet took about a decade and a half. The most recent technologies that we see, like social media, Facebook, Google, Twitter, all of those didn't exist five or six years ago. That's how quickly now everything changes. And as I said, that acceleration, that change is accelerating. So that's what accelerating change is all about. But what that also means is that it means it's exponential. And an exponential means that we are doubling every 12 to 16 months. That change comes from the changes in uh, computing and processing power, uh, which is called Moore's Law. Simply put, Moore's Law means that every 12 to 16 months, we are able to put twice the transistors on an integrated circuit, on a chip that we were able to do before. And therefore, as you know, every phone, every new computer, a year and a half, two years down the road, is either cheaper or twice faster or both, usually. And because our science and technology, our whole society runs those computers and that software, everything is accelerating. Um, so what that means, that means is that exponential growth and exponential change is cumulative. And it's shocking how it creeps on you in the beginning. You don't see it and then it's profound. So if you take 30 steps linearly, one step at a time, one, two, three, after 30 steps, you will be only 30 steps from the starting point. If you take 30 steps exponentially, which is what computers do, doubling every step of the way, so one, two, four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256, in 30 steps, you will be, anyone, can guess how far we'll be from the beginning? Three miles or so. Very far off. 
but good guess. Anyone else? One, how about one billion? That's exponential growth. In 30 steps, in sim simple 30 steps by doubling every time, we'll be one billion steps away from where we started. And that's the world we live in today. So what are the major fields of accelerating change? I'll run through them very quickly. Robotics and artificial intelligence. I don't know if you guys uh, have seen the Google car, the Google Robo car, but I actually rode in it a couple of years ago, and it's surreal. It's unbelievable. When you see the LiDAR going on the top, and you're inside, and you see how the car sees the world by illuminating all the surroundings in 360 degrees with LiDAR, and creates the 3D mapping of the environment in order to maneuver itself in between, it's amazing. That car is only a, an example of what's coming. California and I think Nevada already passed laws which allow autonomous self-driven vehicles on their roads. Um, that car, as far as I know, has had 600,000 miles on it right now. It has been in two accidents. And the first accident was uh, a Google engineer moving the car in the parking lot, going backwards and hitting a sign. The second one was when they were stopped on a red traffic light and somebody hit them from behind. So that car is safer than any human driver, pretty much. And you know, people are emotional, people get upset, people get tired, people get hungry, people get exhausted, people get distracted. We're much more likely to get into an accident than any car like that. If you go onto a regular airplane nowadays, pilots don't really fly those planes. They just land and take off. 98% of the flying time is done on autopilot. They do nothing. They just sit there. They take off and they land. That's it. The military drones that are being used right now in Iraq and in Afghanistan, they don't even have to land and take off with help. They do that automatically on their own. You set the target coordinates where you want them to go, they take off, they go there, they loiter. The only moment where a human operator gets to be involved, I mean, you can override it anytime you want and put it on manual, but you don't have to. The only time is the decision whether to bomb or not to bomb. And I mean, I don't wanna get sidetracked, but that's what I did my research paper on. And I tell you, I don't, really embrace the wholesale, wholesale usage of those drones, the way they're being used right now is, is ridiculous. But that's the world we are going to have to contend with. And right now, only the Americans have them and use them together with a few other countries, but they're being developed in about 45 other countries. So uh, pretty soon, they will be flying everywhere. And they'll be recording or targeting everything we do in one way or another. Um, in terms of artificial intelligence, I don't know how many of you actually watch Jeopardy, for example, or play chess, but in 1997, Deep Blue defeated the best ever human in the history of chess, Gary Kasparov. And at the time when we did that, first of all, Alan Turing, the father of artificial intelligence, the guy who broke the German Enigma codes for their submarines in World War II, he predicted that that will happen in 1952. And when he did so, people laughed at him, said computers would never beat us. 
1996 or 97, can't remember exactly, it happened. When that happened, people said, well, chess is not really a measure of intelligence. It's very mathematical, it's very logical. Of course, computers would beat us at chess. What really matters is language. We are the only species which actually speaks. A computer would never be able to speak like us or understand spoken word like we do. Well, it's been over a year now when the next iteration of IBM, Watson, literally destroyed the two best humans ever in the game of Jeopardy. And I don't know if, if you guys seen any of that, but I know I couldn't even pass the first round with those two humans there because they were geniuses and that machine destroyed them. So the idea is very simple. We are going obsolete. How the ability of things we can do, our skill set is shrinking and machines are getting to be better and better at most of the things that we do. Whether you work in a car factory that gets robotized or whether you're a mailman, chances are pretty soon there will be a machine that can do that job. Another trend, genetic engineering and synthetic biology. So the human genome cost about $3 billion to decode and it took 12 years. And here's the power of exponential change. That was about, I think, five years ago. Uh, today, it takes one day, less than one day, $2,000 and a single computer to decode your, your genome. That's the change in five years. It took 12 years, thousands of science, cooperation from across the globe, over $3 billion to do it the first time. Today, we can do it in a lab, and pretty soon you'll be able to do it on your cell phone or on your laptop for pennies. That's what exponential technology does. What that, what, what that means is that we might be able to put an end to cancer. We might be able to create algae that eats pollution, for example, or produces oil or eventually you might be able to plant a seed in the ground that turns into a house or a school or whatever you need it to be. That's what synthetic biology promises. I'm sure you've noticed there's been an explosion in internet and computer users and devices. Uh, currently three billion internet users and uh, with the explosion of devices and the so-called internet of things, and trends like cheaper, faster, smaller, better, everything, your phones, your computers, your cars, my camera, everything, the TV, uh, the trend is unstoppable. So right now, every one minute, we are uploading 72 hours of videos on YouTube. 92% of the world's data since the beginning of our civilization was created in the last two years. If that doesn't say anything to you, let me put it this way. Right now we're measuring, measuring things in zettabytes of information. And if I'm to put one zettabyte of information, that would be 250 billion DVDs. And we're measuring data in zettabytes. 250 billion DVDs 
if you stuff the Sky Dome with DVDs, it wouldn't hold a fraction of that. That's how much data we're producing. Another trend is nanotechnology. Nanotechnology basically means that we are going to be able, and we are already beginning to be able, to build things from the ground up, from the ground up one atom, one molecule at a time. So instead of, you know, it used to be the case that the computer used to take a whole room or a whole building. Right now, you're carrying computers in your pockets, I'm willing to bet, or anywhere you go. Pretty soon, they will be in our bodies. What used to take a building now takes a little fraction of your pocket. What takes a fraction of your pocket will take the size of a blood cell. And you wouldn't have one or two, you have billions of those inside of you. And I'll tell you why. That may be a good or a bad idea. <laughs> um, the benefits of nanotechnologies are that we have no waste, no energy loss, production on the spot that we need it, or on demand by what we call nanofabs, nanofabricators. And you can make anything out of anything. Another trend is 3D printing. 3D printing, basically, instead of printing 2D on a piece of paper, usually in the form of text, imagine any object that is here in this room, a chair, a table, eventually a TV, a cell phone, a car, a house, a spaceship, everything material will be able to be printed by a 3D printer. Um, the next step from 3D printing, or parallelly with 3D printing, we have what's called 3D bioprinting. So we're not only going to be printing material objects, but we're going to be printing living tissues and eventually living organisms on demand. So you open up your laptop, you start playing with a DNA code, drag and drop. You create a certain DNA. You email it to a company in California called DNA 2.0. They actually make that DNA, put it in a box, and FedEx it to you. That's happening right now. That's not science fiction. We are at the very early stages, but eventually the trend is you'll be able to do bacteria and fruit flies and mice, etc. You do the math. Obviously, um, let me give you one famous example. Is that There's a doctor in California called Dr. Anthony Atala. It's been 10 years now when he had a patient who was a, a boy who had a birth defect with his bladder. Uh, Dr. Atala took stem cells and bioprinted a brand new bladder for that kid and then transplanted it inside of him. And he's a healthy adult now with a perfectly functioning bladder. Now, bladders are relatively simple organs. Basically, it's a balloon, simply put. It's not like the heart or, you know, uh, some of the more complicated organs that we have. But the difference is one of uh, complexity. The principle is the same. If you can build a bladder, you can build almost anything, eventually a human brain. But we'll get to that in a, in, in a little bit later. Uh, another amazing trend is the trend of improving longevity, life expectancy. 
at birth. So if you were to live in the Cro-Magnon era, say 30 or 40,000 years ago, life expectancy for those people was about 18 years. I imagine you're about that age right now. So imagine that's it. You call it a day. Over. End of the movie. That's how the world used to be 30,000, 40,000 years ago. In ancient Egypt, average life expectancy was 25. In ancient Greece, in Athens, in Sparta, the time of Socrates, my favorite time, 28. In 1400 AD Europe, 30 years. In 1800 Europe and USA, 37 years. In 1900 USA, 48 years. The reason why Social Security was introduced at 65 was because nobody expected anyone to be able to live after 48, because people died at 48 at best. Very few made it actually to 65. Very few made it to retirement. So that's one of the reasons why it was introduced, because it wouldn't cost much, because most people would be dead by then. However, by 2002, life expectancy was 78. So in 100 years, we've managed to double life expectancy, almost, from 48 to 78. And right now, every year, we are able to improve life expectancy by three months. In other words, science and technology create the tools that every year we get older, our life expectancy improves by three months. And that's also improving in its own right. There will be a point where every year we are able to improve life expectancy by a year. There and that's the moment which is called longevity escape velocity. That's the moment when we are going to be able to basically live indefinitely, physically speaking. This is not science fiction, this is not religion, this is not a cult, this is uh, very, it's going to be obviously a very profitable business uh, venture, so many people in Silicon Valley are thinking of things like that right now, so they're investing money in it. Some of the biggest, most interesting scientific breakthroughs are happening in disciplines like that, related to that. And um, actually, I'm not sure if I'll be the one to, to actually be able to benefit from that, but chances are you might be those first ones. In other words, as Dr. Aubrey de Grey likes to say, the first babies that would reach two or 300 years of age are probably in high school now. You. Uh, <clears throat> another amazing trend is the trend of whole brain simulation whole brain emulation and mind uploading. I imagine most of you have seen The Matrix and most of you think it's very cool science fiction like I do. But it's also a reality in many ways. Um, just a, a month ago or so, the biggest, one of the biggest ever projects funded by the European Union won $1 billion uh, led by Dr. Henry Macram called the Blue Brain Project which is designed to basically create a whole brain human, human whole brain simulation. Um, 
So I interviewed one of the other experts in the field on my Singularity one-on-one podcast. His name is Dr. Randall Kuna. And he told me, mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. It's a matter of three things. Computing power, which is doubling every year, as we discussed. So you have to have sufficiently powerful computers that can run our, by the way, very powerful processors, the brains. Then we have to have the necessary scanning, brain scanning technology, which, by the way, because it's done with computers, also improves via Moore's law, doubling its imaging capabilities every year. I mean, I know that you know that every time you get a new phone, it has a better camera. Every time it, you take a better camera, it takes not only HD, soon it will be 4K. It will not be 24, 30 frames per second, 60 sec, uh, frames per second, 100, 200, etc. That's usually what happens every time you get a new camera. Well, imagine using big cameras to take shots of people's brains. That's what fMRIs and MRIs are, simplistically put. They're doubling their imaging resolution every year. So when we get to the point where we can scan very accurately all the data that you have in your brains, and where we get to the point where we have the computing power to store that data, and we figure out the process of transmitting that data and loading it up in those computers, well, that's the moment, the moment where we have not simulations, but mind uploads. Um, okay, so that leads me to the topic of transhumanism. I am um, a transhumanist. Simply put, being a transhumanist means that you believe that with the help of technology, we can improve, we have improved our uh, human capabilities. We can improve them, we will continue to improve them, and also that there is nothing wrong in doing so. I mean, I see many of you here wear glasses. You guys are already transhumanists. All of you wear clothes. Just think about it because one of the most common uh, criticisms is the things you're saying are not natural. I would say, okay, what's natural? Is it natural that we're in this building and we're not in a cave somewhere right now? Is it natural that you have clothes, that you have shoes, that you're not all naked living in a cave, eating off from the fire? Every step of the way out of those caves, we have used technology and we have improved ourselves. And that's, by the way, one of the reasons why from 18 at the age of the Cro-Magnons, now we're living four times longer. And that's also improving, as we discussed. Uh, so, but the difference is that those tools that we're using right now would be nothing compared to the tools that we're going to be using tomorrow when we're able to actually put computers inside of our bodies. So when we do that, any one of you could be Alan Armstrong. And anyone could beat Michael Phelps. And if you think that that may be illegal for the Olympics, the military wouldn't care about that. They would need the best, strongest, fastest, smartest, most network-connected soldier they can get. So they would not hesitate to use those things. I mean, even now, 
the things that we call doping in the Olympics are routinely given to soldiers. Most of them were invented for soldiers, for the wars. Um, instant coffee is just of the lightest example, which was invented during World War II. Amphetamines were invented to keep soldiers um, able to do night watch during the wars too, by the way. Um, and so this is what transhumanism is all about. So I just want to ask you to not get scared when you hear the term transhumanist or transhuman, because the crucial part for me is the word human inside there. So transhumanism is humanism taken to a new level. Transhumanism is the best hope that we have, perhaps, to alleviate suffering. To, um, because I know, for example, how long and how hard my, uh, my wife's grandmother suffered. And it is those technologies that could, one, alleviate suffering, and two, eventually get rid of it altogether. Um, which leads me to the next most important point called the technological singularity. So what is the technological singularity? Well, there are many, many meanings. Um, first of all, in language, a singularity means the state of being singular, distinct, peculiar, uncommon, or unusual. In mathematics, it's basically a problem with undefined answer. Five divided by zero is a singularity, in a way. In physics, a singularity is a black hole. It's a place where the laws of the universe, as we know them, don't hold true. It's the place where what Einstein called the fabric of time and space ruptures. So in the technological sense, we are borrowing the term from physics. And we're utilizing it to mean a number of things. I will just give you the simple, the most simplest um, definition pertaining to our conversation today, which is intelligence explosion. So just two words, intelligence explosion. What happens when your toothbrush becomes smarter than you? Where do you go? What do you do? Uh, what is intelligence explosion? I'll give you two examples. That could happen either via augmented human intelligence. I mean, I'm augmenting myself with this everywhere I go. I have access to the internet. If I have a question, if I want to do a quick math equation, I can do everything with this. This is already a part of me. It's already augmenting me, making me do magic, like talk to somebody at the other end of the world instantly. Tell that to somebody from 50 years or 100 years ago, and they'll think that you're crazy, you're a wizard. But Arthur C. Clarke, one of the fathers of science fiction, says that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So the next step of enhancing our human intelligence would be, as I said, computers going into our own bodies you can call us perhaps cyborgs at that point in time. And I mean, I, I can make an argument that we already are cyborgs in so many ways. But the alternative route to that would be if machines on their own right become smarter than us. And the question is then, what happens to humanity? What happens to humanity when we stop being the smartest entities on the planet? 
the reason why the dinosaurs went extinct or that we managed to fill in the gap when the dinosaurs went extinct, we were a niche organisms. Mammals were a very niche organism. The reason why we're here where we are today is because of our intelligence, because of our ability to intelligently create and improve on our world and step by step build on that. And so the moment we stop to be the smartest entities on this planet is like a black hole for us. We are going to be unable to predict or to model the future. We don't know what's going to happen. We simply have no clue because uh, guessing what will happen at that moment is like playing Beethoven to your goldfish. You know, for the goldfish, Beethoven may be just some kind of vibrations, but it can never actually hear the music. And the difference between us and those entities may be the difference between us and the goldfish. Only in the latter case, we'll be the goldfish and they'll be the smart ones. <laughs> um, So what does this all mean to you or for you? Chances are that, as I said before, you're going to be the ones to stand on the event horizon of that black hole. Your generation may be the one in charge. You may be the people who decide, who make that call. Are we going to survive or we're going to go extinct? And so I'm here to ask you, what are you guys going to do? <laughs> Think about it for a second. This is something your parents, your grandparents, they would, they never, our ancestors, they never had to face the world that we are and you are going to face today. So you're coming at a break point in the history of our civilization. You could be those make or break people of the future. So if I have a takeaway message from our meeting today, that will be to say that going back to where we started, education is very important, but not the one that others, in my view, be it teachers or parents, give to you. Because education is something that you cannot be given, ultimately. You can only take it yourself. So the education that I say is important is the one that you take, not the one that people give you, no matter how much they love you and care about you. Also, the diploma that that education comes with is going to be less and less important. I would say meaningless. I have a bunch of diplomas and awards at home. They just gather dust and do nothing. Um, you've probably discovered that even a job is, is not a certainty anymore, and, and I, I can bombard you with statistics if we get to that, that even a university degree from the most prestigious university doesn't guarantee that you have a good job or a good career. You can still end up with, with a minimum wage. Minimum wage. And so... What's important is to build that education where you're the proactive part, where you go and take and learn and love what you do, because that's the only way you can improve. 
And I also want to ask you to not ask for permission from your parents or from your teachers to do that or to change the world or to follow whatever you decide to follow. I want to invite you to keep learning and improving and get your education into your own hands. I want to warn you though that it will take a lot of stamina. Life is a marathon, it's not a sprint. You will fail endless times. And that's probably going to be quite often the best thing that could happen to you because that's the best way to learn. I know I've, I've learned the best when I failed miserably and it hurts and I'm kicking and screaming, but that's part of the learning process. And I also want to invite you to never give up. One of the most incredible people that I met when I was in NASA was astronaut Dan Barry. If you Google him, Dan Barry has been twice to space. Uh, for a time, he was he was uh, he held the longest spacewalk. He had to apply to NASA to become an astronaut thirteen times. The first time he applied, he was twenty three. They said no. He said, oh, "Big deal, I'm twenty three." The last time he was thirty five. They said thirteen no's. And his best friends, the people close to him, were telling him, Dan, it's not going to happen. And those are the people who care the most for you and who love you and who don't want you to get your heart broken. Dan, give it up. It's not going to happen. But he persisted. He had the guts to follow his dream. And on the 14th time, he got in. And not only he got in, but he went twice in space. And he's one of the most incredible people that I've ever met in my life. Uh, so time is advancing and I have had a few other things I wanted to share with you, but I'll stop for now. Maybe they will come in our conversation. And I just want to leave you with a single parting quote, which is one of my best, most favorite quotes ever. It's uh, by George Bernard Shaw. And it's from a book called Maxims for Revolutionists, Man and Superman, reading, uh, written in 1903. And I think you are going to be those revolutionists, whether you like it or not. And this is what he says. The reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. So I just want to invite you, when people say be reasonable, I say be very unreasonable. Thanks, guys. <laughs>